If you're interested in how to make teacher training work online, then this episode's for you. Hi everyone, I'm Shane Leaning and welcome to Travel Ed, a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I work in teaching and leadership development and in this show, I get to know the teachers, leaders and innovators making a difference around the world. My guest today is Laura Wilkes. Laura is passionate about using tech in training for educators, especially in the English language teaching field. Over the past 10 years, Laura's developed and scaled many online training programs. And in our conversation today, we explore the future of teacher training and how technology can support professional development. If you like this show and you think others would too, please do help by subscribing and giving a rating wherever you listen. Now, many have thought a lot about online teaching since COVID, but Laura actually started thinking about this a little earlier in a Trinity Cert TESOL course she was running for English teachers in Hong Kong. Let's jump right in. To go back to 2019 in Hong Kong, we obviously had a lot of political unrest, which caused disruptions and stuff. We did already have an online piece to the Trinity College London qualifications that we were running in that centre. And really kind of the political unrest helped us to kind of lean into that more. So instead of it just being the initial starter course that trainees completed, which was all online, it was um, now proponents that we're putting on there. And it worked really well, actually. Um, Courses like the Certificate for TESOL or Cert TESOL, Trinity Cert TESOL course is really intensive. If you do it full time, it's four weeks in many uh, schools or training centres. And that if you do that face to face, you get physically, mentally and emotionally exhausted. So by putting components online, such as the assignments, we worked with those first. So like what is the uh, learner profile assignment? What are the different components? Breaking it down, doing step by step videos and little guides and templates that people could use worked really well because it actually saved time. The sessions took 15 minutes online and trainees could go back and study. So that's how we first originally started it. And then, so we had that foundation and then we built on that. Given that transport was limited during that time, there was obviously the question of safety. People obviously very anxious about commuting to the centre, which was in the the midst of the the hubbub of um, Hong Kong Central, that is. So that kind of We'd already seen it was working and that gives confidence to invest further to keep going from that. And, and how was the, how did people feel about that? How were the participants? So that's when things got really uncertain. And at that point, we already had a blended option where they were coming into the centre to do some face-to-face workshops, like a flipped approach, and obviously do their teaching practice with the students um, meet with their tutors for their mid-course tutorial and uh, practice um, materials assignment interview. But we obviously had to cecil that we had to do a shutdown of the centre for students, t- uh, trainees and obviously staff. So for that group, it was quite um initial shock because by the end of the first week of a four-week course, we had to move everything online. And initially, of course, people were quite anxious, but um, we did give them the choice like you can either defer to a later course when we can resume face-to-face or you can keep going with us and we'll move everything online and we'll support you. So I gave them all that choice and surprisingly, they all said, no, we'll keep going. And when there was a break, um, a few like towards the end of the course where we could come back into the centre, they didn't want to, they were quite happy. 
with the fully online experience. And that meant they were teaching students online. So we had to obviously train them on how to use Zoom. That was a platform we were using at the time. Train the students on how to use Zoom. Completely flip how we model teaching practice and do the guided observations, which is what the tutors do with everybody observing them. Um, Yeah, we had to put quite a few things in place to make sure that they were ready and they felt supported. And it worked out really well. Wow. So it wasn't just the students or the participants that had to make the changes. Everyone was making those changes. Exactly. And it's really important in those kind of scenarios to have an amazing team. And I I did in Hong Kong, I had an incredible team of people who, you know, I presented this problem to them. I said, we can do this, listen to their concerns. We troubleshooted that and then we went for it. And if you don't have those kind of people around you, it's really difficult to succeed in these kind of um, quantum leap changes. But a credit to to all of them, they worked incredibly hard to to make it possible. I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, a lot of listeners will that will resonate with the idea of needing a team around you when we're, we're faced with adversity and challenges, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it makes a huge difference. You can't do these things alone. So Laura, that was kind of one of your, you know, this big leap into online, um, certainly for, for teacher training. And then you've developed in that area a lot and it's become a passion project of yours, certainly across many platforms. Have you developed yourself a blueprint for what successful online learning looks like? Well, I think to go back to our earlier point is to not make the mistake of just using it as a library of resources. You need to have a very clear e-pedagogy or digi-pedagogy, as I also hear it's referred to. And that means really intentionally thinking about um, how you're going to approach the learning, who your users are, who your trainees are, what their needs are, really sketching out those profiles and understanding their digital literacy needs, um, other needs that they may have. Uh, what's going on in their lives and how long they can commit to in sprints of study and really using that to inform how you shape the courses. I think that's one key thing that people um, may underestimate, thinking, oh, we can just take the face-to-face element and move it online. That's actually not going to work because you're probably going to miss out on certain tools or um, strategies that you can use in an online space that doesn't try to replicate face-to-face, but does it, does it online and does it well? Does that mean starting from scratch? Uh, no, of course. Like you've got lots of obviously experiences that you can obviously take and think and think about like, oh, you know, um, I really want to create interaction between the trainees because that's going to be really important for them to create a sense of community, uh, community of practice almost for them to share what they're learning, reflect and digest and think about how they're applying it to their context, whether they're teaching online or teaching face to face. So I think that's something, you know, you can take from the classroom, like normally you'd have them in groups or pairs to discuss, like how could you emulate that in the online space? Are you going to pair it with a supporting technology like WeChat or WhatsApp or Skype or uh, Zoom, or maybe you have another meeting room where they do some self-paced learning first and you have to have a few questions and then they come together for 15 minutes in a live chat to discuss and brainstorm. So you can use those kind of supporting technologies to emulate that, or maybe there's like a forum space in the LMS itself that you want to use, but maybe the delay of time and the lack of immediacy means that you want to add a immediate kind of live online platform, um, communication platform that is uh, to support that, to create that kind of connection. So I think it's important to kind of think about what works well with adults. Um, I'm thinking obviously from from an adult perspective, uh, what are some good principles obviously of um, teaching adults and that pedagogy, and then how can you bring it and utilize those tools in the online spaces? And you almost, I guess you need to think about your tools first and know those tools before you start on that planning process. Otherwise you're 
you're going to do exactly what you said not to do, which is to plan just how you would do it well online. Yeah, I think it's good to experiment with these resources and also do a bit of usability testing. Maybe involve your trainees in it as well. Tell them that you're testing out a few things, get their feedback. How easy was it to use? How accessible is it? Uh, was it easy to troubleshoot if there's a problem um, with that particular tool or the LMS itself? So I think you can obviously involve them in that because no a learning platform or technology is perfect. It's obviously designed with uh, a developer's own format of personas, which are going to be quite far reaching. So you'll need to kind of really test it to see if it works for your specific context um, and what you may need to do to kind of add in a few extra steps and support if your learners need it. So um, an example of this could be oh, just digital literacy generally, I think is a, is a thing not to overestimate, but taking time to kind of um, create some instructional videos for your learners or do a live show of how to use particular tools just so that they are set up for success because not all tools and learning management systems are kind of built with that new, non-experienced user coming into that space. And sometimes make assumptions that, oh, the cog button is for settings. Not everybody knows that. Yeah, and I guess that's even more acute when we're thinking of working with adults you know, a variety of experiences with tech. It's maybe, you know, a little bit different with, with um, especially these younger apps uh, that are marketed at, at younger learners who may have been exposed through devices to some of these, some of these things. Yeah, we can make some assumptions, but I think again, like just <laughs> maybe just create some instructional videos, particularly if you're going to be doing things online, you may have parents that are supporting those learners. If you're working with young learners or teens that won't know, but will be a key component of that learner success because they're there to support if they're remote and studying um, online, like I say. So think about those people too, when you're um, developing your training or your your lessons, what, whatever it is may be. And you mentioned a few minutes ago about using pair work, for example, group work. How do you bring that in? Really thinking about human interaction and bringing that into the online learning experience. Do you have any examples of how you might create those spaces for authentic human interaction? One of the wonderful things about working with um, digital spaces, online spaces, is that you can help people or encourage people to create something that then other people can access. And I know we can do that in obviously a face-to-face classroom. We can create posters and then people can look at them and we can obviously photo them and put them online. Um, But I think there's something quite special about um, being able to create, like for example, I created a podcast episode with a fellow uh, teacher educator for a community of practice I was in. And that was quite special to be able to do that. So I think when you're approaching these tasks and you're thinking about the communication gap, what is it that they're communicating about? What is the reason, the purpose for them to work together, just like we would in our in our face-to-face settings? And what is it that they could create potentially as a result of that communication? Could it be um, an infographic? Could it be, um, yeah, like I said, a short a short recording? Um, an avatar, for example, you could think about bringing in these things and giving them some options. So they have like a a digital artifact that they can then share with the other trainees or students, depending on who you're working with, and people can then interact with that further. I think that's quite powerful. Okay. So your blueprint, I guess, would be based around purpose, right? That's kind of what you said. It's it's around designing things with purpose and choosing your tools purposefully um, to make it work. What approaches wouldn't work or what have you seen that just is you know a a really bad example of a practice during the online learning space 
Well, like I mentioned, thinking about your personas of your students or trainees is really important. If you don't think about those needs and like maybe do some interviews or do an initial survey, a training needs analysis survey with your um, intended group of people, you're potentially going to overlook something that somebody may need. And that may put some kind of barriers in place for people who um, may need like uh, an immersive reader, for example, or may need to be shown how to use uh, text to audio um, in the online space for their computer that they're using. Or maybe they have load shedding. Um, the internet is going to cut out or be restricted. What, what's the strategy for them? Like, how can you still keep them included and not excluded because of their, um, their, their, their setting and the resources they have, the internet and electricity resources they have in their setting? So I think that's really, really important that people think about that. And if you're working in an online space, likelihood is you're going to be working with people with various places. I, I most certainly do. I work with people from all across the world, which is fantastic, but I need to really get to know who they are first. So I don't make assumptions that their setting is the same as mine. Of course. And it's totally different when you're in a classroom or you're in a space where you've got, you've controlled the environment. So mm-hmm. not only is everyone in a different environment, but they're all used to interacting with technology in a, in a certain way. Maybe they do it through different size devices on a basic level, or maybe like you say, their internet speed causes them to do different things or they like the text captions when they're browsing the TikTok, you know, and these kind of things. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you think about these and maybe you draft like two, three personas of where your trainees kind of sit, you can then, when you're thinking about the course and the materials and the, the things that you're putting in place, does it apply to each of those? Have you missed something? So I find it kind of useful to kind of create imaginary personas based on the information I get from from my students or, or trainees so I would like you know give them a name and then say what their needs are and kind of have that while I'm writing things and keep on looking back you asked me about other things like other mistakes people make they they don't have a design guide so I don't know if you've ever been through any online courses like whoa that text color's changed or oh that font is <laughs> different and it, it can feel quite um Frankenstein-esque, as I like to call it. And I think it's important to think about that experience that people are having. Are you remaining consistent? And is your um, design guide also thinking about dyslexic learners, learners who may have colorblindness, that type of thing? That's why you need to have those things in place if you want to be inclusive and to create accessible learning. So, and also consistency. It's, there's nothing worse than the kind of switching between text sizes and fonts. It can be really frustrating. I almost feel like I'm a little bit less forgiving of that online than if I was face to face. Really, you think so? Have you encountered that recently? Well, I'm I'm just now thinking back to going through my teacher training. And, you know, when you're face to face and you've got a person standing in front of you and maybe you're in a crowd of people, that what's happening on the PowerPoint, you might have a, an opinion on it, but maybe that's your, your focus is around a lot of different things. Um, but when you're online, you're it's the one screen, it's one place your eyes are on, and and mm. it can really jar you in a in a big way. I get quite funny about fonts <laughs> and colours that are used wrong, but I think on a in a an online environment even more. Yeah, there's a good point. Like when you take that kind of um, the physical like person standing there with you, explaining things and talking to you about things, you are just kind of sat in that quiet space of maybe looking at some rich text, some infographics, and other parts, and it is really going to stand out like a sore thumb, I think. Um, it didn't obviously, I'm just giving an example of text, but I think this design guide also applies to, you know, creating videos. Do you have um, 
a particular style that you're going to use in the videos? Do you want to sound like you're talking to somebody over a coffee? I, I quite like to use that approach when I'm talking to trainees over videos, when I'm introducing a unit or walking them through something. Um, and I try and keep that tone the same. And if you have that design guide, you can always go back to that when reviewing and editing or b- before you even go into production um, to make sure that you kind of keep that consistent tone throughout. And videos are a great way to kind of humanize and, and you know, make trainees feel less alone um, if they get to see your face and hear your voice um, throughout the process. In terms of accessibility, I feel there's probably a difference um, between when you're ma- you're differentiating or making something accessible face to face and the mm. accommodations you can make mm. between that and online, where maybe when you've developed an online course, a lot of the materials or maybe some of the 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 text that's coming up is not differentiated for each cohort as such. It's kind of baked in, which means maybe you have to think about some of those accessibility things earlier on. Yeah, definitely. It's going back to those personas, right? And the design guide that you have in place. And I think obviously having a strong review and feedback process is important. Uh, So if you're writing something, have different people to review it before it goes live and collect feedback from your trainees intermittently to ensure that it is um, doing what it needs to. And if they have any feedback or things that you have missed, Um, you can do some differentiation, but if you, you you have a learner who has additional needs that are spoken to you about it, then that's a really good opportunity to have a conversation to strategize. So I've worked with um, one trainee in particular who stands out. Um, He told me that he has attention deficit disorder to an extent that he does need to take breaks. And remembering that and thinking about that in the live sessions we had on Zoom was really important. So I could create spaces for him to kind of just step away from the computer and have a screen break but not miss out on the content so we can't always accommodate absolutely everything up front but we can obviously strategize with those learners to kind of think about what additional things we can do or maybe additional tools that we may use if they're studying by themselves um, the self-paced element of the course um, to support them and I think having that initial conversation will really really help. Are there any misconceptions that you've experienced along the way when we're coming to using tech, um, specifically with adult learning? Yeah, I think if we think about the um, pandemic situation and how teachers and parents and students all had to move online quite swiftly, I think that's obviously coloured people's experience of online or what it could be. And it's been a very stressful one. And that's not something to overlook because emergency remote teaching online is very different to intentional you know, creating an e-pedagogy, creating personas, setting up a review system, having a design guide, you know, and creating really special experiences that can reach out to people who um, can, you know, access it on demand. And it can have a, a bigger impact as well in terms of what they remember and recall because they can go back to things. I think we need to kind of address that because I think some teachers and students have had a very negative experience that's also associated with the pandemic as well. I think the two spill into each other yeah. where, you know, we're kind of like we're crammed into homes with, you know, all members of our family there and trying to study and work. And I think that's been very stressful. So I think that's one thing to kind of unpick. And I think that's going to take a bit of time as well, because I I sense and I hear from teachers like, oh, thank goodness we're back to face to face. Don't want to do that again. It's like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that's uh, hopefully we can uh, give some positive online experiences. And I encourage any listeners that are 
feeling that way to maybe engage in some professional development as a teacher, do a short online course and, you know, try and create new experiences where you can have a positive, hopefully a positive experience um, studying online. So you can kind of reshape perceptions and what online can be and use that to reimagine what you do for your students. I mean, that's something that I've heard a lot as well, you know, where this this kind of reaction of people going, yes, back to face to face where we're so ready for it. Mm -hmm. And I just almost wonder, you know, there's the there's the professional development aspect to it. But do you think if online learning does work so well or has been successful, do you think there is something to these people who are saying, actually, we need to be back to face to face with our um, PD learning? I think it's also important to think about who's saying this as well because I think Mm. there's also people who benefit from the online space who may be more marginalized in society who actually found online a lot more accessible a lot more um, inclusive for them versus the face-to-face so I think it's important that we don't kind of just tune into to one to one group and maybe think about who it actually did work for um, of course, there's benefits for, for both. And actually, I think having a blended model is great if you can, because it's lovely to meet people in a physical space and then go off and do the online bit. So you already kind of know people a bit or, you know, emulate that in a, a live online session. You can also do that too. Um, it's nice to have the best of both worlds if you can afford it and if it works for your trainees. But I think it kind of comes back to that, like, who's your you know, who's your intended audience? What's their preconceptions? Have they had a negative experience with online recently? And if so, could you kind of create buy-in in terms of getting them to try something different? A lot of technologies, um, new things and new ways of doing things are part of a change management process. And we have to convey to people what our vision is, how it's going to work and how we're going to support them, why we're doing it. And I think that's often overlooked, not just with online learning, but with any technology that's brought into a school. Do you remember when... Um, interactive whiteboards were introduced yes okay (laughs) showing our age um how was that experience for you because i wonder if it's the same we had the red pen the blue pen and the green pen and we just used it as a whiteboard (laughs) yeah exactly so that's that's an example where like the change management needs to be there the training needs to be there as well to show people what's possible and also creating spaces for teachers to share best practices so they've done the training they've tried it out and they get to come back and say well i've used it for this or this didn't work but this worked and i think you need to kind of create spaces for those conversations else otherwise it's just a very expensive piece of equipment that's sitting in a classroom that isn't really being used. And I think that's a really good example um, that I think a lot of teachers, uh, you and myself included, can relate to that could be used for a metaphor for any other technology that we bring in, like how are we going to introduce it? How are we going to train people? How are we going to create that space for best practice sharing so it can evolve and become something really great and really useful for teachers and learners alike? And, And Laura, it really struck me what you said that we need to reflect on the experience that our learners might have already had with technology, especially over COVID, because that I I totally agree. There may be this mesh of different experience that they've had. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily the technology that was the traumatic part of the COVID experience, but the all the other things that were happening around it. And maybe some people have got negative perceptions yeah. attached to this tech because of what they went through. Yeah, I think it's important to create space for for them to talk about that. So like when I moved everything online uh, for the Trinity College London uh, Centre I was working at, it's important to create space with your, like in my case, it's my academic team for them to say what they're worried about, what what they think is going to happen that's going to go wrong and how we can create space to address those concerns and create that feedback loop in those times to check in so that they don't feel like they're being set up to fail. Absolutely. 
So, Laura, you also have a podcast that you um, that you deliver, which is brilliant, TESOL Pop, aimed at TESOL teachers across the world. Now, that's obviously a professional development tool that a lot of people are leaning into, and you're obviously quite quite supportive of. So, can you talk me through what's what's the podcast? How did it come about, and where does that fit into the online PD scene? So, it originally started so. I was obviously working on the Trinity College London qualification courses as a, as a director and trainer, and you get regular questions from trainees. And that's how Eve Conway and I came up with the podcast, like, oh, let's answer some of these questions in a podcast. But it's since evolved from that to interviewing uh, professionals, not just teachers, but, you know, content writers, ed tech developers, um, journalists in some cases, um, over these like short 15 minute episodes. And the reason for that is um, I wanted to kind of create this kind of staff room space. Often when I've been in staff rooms in large schools where I've worked, you have a whole coming together of all different people. And you can often have some really magic mentor moments, I like to call it, where you may overhear somebody sharing the best practice that they've been using in their class that's worked really well, or somebody talking about um, a particular website where they used it to ask Henry VIII questions for their history class, for example. These are real conversations I've heard or a particular like admin tool that they've used. And I think it's it's kind of rare to get those kind of snapshot moments. And that's why the podcast has kind of evolved to that space of interviews. So people can feel connected to other, you know, people in the profession, get ideas, practical ideas, whether it's related to teaching, career pathways or trends, and think about how they can obviously take that away for their own context. Podcasts and social media have really opened up this conversation that teachers are able to have with each other. They really have. And I think like the fact that you can access it on demand. I asked um, my listeners, you know, when do they listen to the podcast? What do they like about it? And they're like, I love the fact it's bite-sized. I am really busy. Um, I love the fact it's practical because I'm looking for ideas and I feel like I can still do something and it's it's not overwhelming. It, it fits in with the time I have. And also I can listen to it on my coffee break or commute or when I'm exercising, some of them say, which... I don't particularly see it as a podcast that spurs people on to run faster if that's what they're doing. But, you know, each to their own. That's awesome. I hope this podcast is is something that motivates people to run faster. <laughs> Brilliant. So if that's one part of the if, of the PD puzzle, when mm-hmm. when I talk with um schools about putting effective professional development in place, one thing I've been referring to a lot is some guidance that was released last year, actually, from the Education Endowment Foundation, a big guide on professional development. And they said that professional development should develop in four areas. So it should build knowledge, motivate staff, develop techniques and embed practice. And and even within all of these, they've got different mechanisms that make them up. And essentially, they say the more mechanisms are in place, the more likely the professional development is to be effective and impactful. So I'm just kind of wondering, can an online platform really deliver on all of this or does it require some kind of blend of face-to-face elements? Now, in particular, I'm thinking in terms of developing teaching techniques or that kind of rehearsal part of professional development and and feedback on what you're doing, or, or can online also kind of support in that area? Yeah, absolutely. I think it can. So obviously it's important for people when they're doing that input of, you know, let's say you're focusing on a particular concept um, to then go away and apply it to their their context, whether it is they're teaching online or teaching face-to-face or doing hybrid teaching. So I think that kind of combination is really important. 
um, regardless of if the workshop is face-to-face or let's say it's a workshop online or if it's a self-paced online course, there needs to be that element of like call to action of what that person needs to do to make that jump from what they've just experienced to applying it to their context. So reflective questions and tasks can really help with this. In terms of really kind of getting a bit deeper into that, I think giving people uh, reflective tools or observation tools that they can use either for themselves or they could create for themselves, or they could pair up with somebody to um, get that peer feedback. Again, that can be done online. You could record, of course, if you have permission um, of your of your students um, and then share a, a clip of that recording for a peer to give feedback and for you to have a really engaging conversation about, you know, what you did, why you did it, how it worked, how you felt about it. Uh, were you using the technique, how you intended, did it work or what would you, what would you do differently? Um, I think the online space can definitely do that. And, but I think for a lot of people, they'll pick a mix um, based on what works for them and obviously go for what's the easiest option that can get the training and the ideas into practice as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So you know, maybe that is a case of like self-paced online, a quick Zoom call to check up, set some learning plans together, go away and try it for a few weeks, come back together and do a reflective chat. Maybe it can look very different depending on um, what you have access to and, and what you want to achieve. And that's maybe what more of our face-to-face interactions can be like in the future, that what you've just described as, okay, let's use the face-to-face for that personalized kind of collaboration and really kind mm-hmm. of delving into those things that online might not be the best for. So we can get most of the content and, and and the learning done online and that, you know, using those two two strengths that support each other. So Laura, online learning is is your thing and and this is kind of what you what you love and what you work around. So where do you see the next developments in in online learning? I think the first thing I'm going to talk about is the increase of online courses and micro-credential courses particularly. I think if you follow what universities are doing, they're certainly leaning into that more and companies too. So I think that's going to be a trend that we see um, continue to grow in the coming years, these micro-online courses. And in addition to that, I think that also relates to not just... um, not just like the younger learners or teenagers, but um, thinking about that lifelong learning and how um, that's an important aspect for, to kind of reskill and upskill people, um, regardless of their teachers or other professions. I think we're going to see obviously micro credentials to help people in reskilling and staying relevant in their industry or transferring to another industry. Obviously, with that, I think we're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, <laughs> you, we see it already, right? With the uh, TEFL providers, to take that example, you can see some amazing TEFL course pres- providers out there who invest time and energy in creating really great learning experiences and have those um, accredited as well with reputable organizations. I think we're going to see a whole array of that in the online learning space still. So you you have to be quite savvy in doing your research and checking out things before you part with your money and time in terms of what online course providers you go with, because there will be some out there that just don't have the e-pedagogy, don't have like the, the training know-how, haven't thought about the personas, haven't thought about the design guide, haven't got a feedback loop that's informing the development. And it just will be a case of just ticking a box uh, as opposed to a learning experience. So I think that's going to be something to be quite cautious about as we see this kind of ongoing boom in online course offerings. Some other interesting things, obviously multimedia, podcasts, videos, Uh, better quality videos. We're definitely seeing that in social media. People are getting quite savvy with their video editing skills. So I think that's still going to be obviously something that continues to trend upwards. And 
AI assisting LMSs or um, learning experiences to make it more personalized and tailored. So for example, if you uh, scored so much on a quiz and there's certain areas that you could review, the AI will push that to you to say like, hey, I noticed, you know, this was a area of difficulty. Why not review this or try this instead? So I think that's really exciting to watch. Yeah, I think ultimately, if we, the more we can personalize learning and tailor things to people's needs and keep make it interesting with the media that we use and and it's a really exciting time. And I encourage teachers to, you know, follow what happens on the conference circuit, like BET, for example, the BET conference is great for EdTech. Uh, if you can go, go. Um, it's a fantastic experience to kind of see what the developers are thinking of and what's what's coming next. Thank you so much, Laura. This has been, this has been great. It's been a great fun. Thanks very much for having me. This conversation with Laura made me reflect on a few things. Firstly, many can have negative feelings towards online learning after being forced online through COVID, but that this has also helped direct our attention to what good online courses look like. You need to create interaction and a community and think about your audience and the personas you're aiming at. Also, a design guide is even more essential online. If you run in school teacher development, why not integrate some online learning saving time for using face-to-face sessions for what they're great for, conversations. You can find out more about Laura, her work, and her podcast, Tiesel Pop, using the links in the show notes. Travel Ed is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leaning. Original music by Guillermo Silva. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and help spread the word by giving a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow along and join the conversation on social media using the links in the show notes. See you next week.